This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and James Johnson. We're going to talk about tactical voting today in the wake of the Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton by-elections. That was quite a strong factor in the fact that the Conservatives lost both seats. James Forsyth first. Just tell us how seriously that's being taken at the centre of the Conservative Party. I think the Tiverton result is really worrying for the Tories. Not only have they lost one of the safest Tory seats in England, but you've also seen a situation where the Labour Party that was second in 2017 and 2019, the last two general elections in that seat, lost its deposit. And it hasn't lost its deposit in Tiverton because voters in that part of Devon are particularly unpersuaded by Keir Starmer or anything like that. It's because voters looked to see who was best placed to defeat the Tories, saw that was the Lib Dems in that seat, and so turn to them. I mean, the worry for the Tories is it suggests that British politics is split into two blocks, Tory and anti-Tory. And in crude terms, the anti-Tory vote adds up to about 60% in the opinion polls. We put together Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens. And if you get into a situation like you saw in 1997, when that anti-Tory vote is prepared to vote in each constituency for whoever is most likely to unseat the Tories, then that will be absolutely devastating for the Tories at the next election. James Johnson, just tell us a little bit more about this anti-Tory vote. What's driving it? Is it the Conservative Party? Is it certain policies of the Conservative Party? Or is it Boris Johnson? Well, the main thing that we see in the polling and in the focus groups is that it's Boris Johnson. We ran a poll, my company, Jail Partners, ran a poll in Wakefield about a month before the result during the campaign. And uh, we found the main reason that voters gave for voting Labour, including amongst swing voters, was Boris Johnson broke the rules over Partygate and lied to the public. The second most given reason was Boris Johnson is not in touch with working class people. And similar focus groups that we ran in Tiverton and Honiton showed the same thing where Boris Johnson was the barrier two voters coming over or sticking with the Conservatives. And I think they also mobilise that effect that James speaks about. You know, They mobilise Labour and Lib Dem voters feeling like they need to switch their votes in order to vote the Conservatives out. So, look, I think the longer this goes on, the more chance there is of, of it becoming more of a Conservative issue, just by death by association. But at the moment, that is quite limited to Boris Johnson as the main driver. The other thing we've got going on is also that Conservative 2019 voters feel they can defect the Lib Dems because they aren't as scared of Keir Starmer as they were of Jeremy Corbyn. And that's a real opener for people to also be able to defect directly as well as vote tactically. James, one of the reasons that Oliver Dowden's resignation yesterday was so potent was that he is the cabinet minister who has been the most in touch with the the views of voters on the doorstep and of Conservative party activists. So who could possibly take over from him who might be able to work on this sort of pincer movement that we're talking about here with with Labour in the red wall seats and then the Lib Dems in the southwest and blue wall seats? So my my expectation is that that Downing Street will not immediately replace, uh, appoint a new party chairman. I think they would like to be able to do a reshuffle in July. And because the party chairman isn't in charge of a department or anything like that, 
I mean, they'll probably hold off on that. But I think you raise a, a crucial question, which is the Tories are going to have to fight on multiple fronts in the next general election campaign. And that is going to make things much more complicated for them. So messages that might work well in one place might not help them in another place. And I think that, you know, this is going to complicate things for the Tories, especially because, as James said, there is no Jeremy Corbyn there. You know, I think last time in 2019, the Tories could run a campaign that was quite heavily centred on those red wall seats. But they could then tell traditional Tory seats in their home counties, look, you don't want to risk Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street. And there was such a fear of Corbyn that that kind of whipped those Tories in who might not have felt comfortable with some of the kind of cultural tone or some of the, the more um, fiscally loose policies that were in the manifesto, you know, or even Brexit itself. But the fear of Corbyn was enough to keep them inside the Tory stockade. But we don't have that next time round. And Keir Starmer is, you know, part of his problem stem from this, but it, it's quite hard to get people kind of scared of Keir Starmer. I mean, I, I think he is, for good or ill, he is quite dull. And I think you're not going to be able to persuade people that they have to hold their nose, come what may, because it's imperative that you keep Keir Starmer out. So the Tories are going to have to find a way to fight on multiple different fronts at the next general election. And that, it, that is always one of the most difficult things for any political partisanship. It's one of the things that Labour really struggled with in 2019 and that it was it was trying to defend those red wall seats, but also trying to, to hold on to more metropolitan seats. And that is what caused so much of Labour's agonies over its Brexit position between 2017 and 2019. James Johnson, let's just talk about the difference between tactical voting in a by-election and tactical voting in a in a general election. Is it really the case, as is received wisdom in Westminster, that voters find tactical voting much easier in by-elections just because of the way that, that things are so concentrated than they do in general elections? Yeah, I think there is something in that. And I also think that, I mean, the main thing is that the type of electorate is slightly different. So in by-elections, you tend to get more high-awareness voters who definitely know who the best person to beat the incumbent is. In a general election, the electorate is, is significantly larger. Not everybody will be clued in on who exactly to vote for to get someone out, and other people just won't much care and will want to go with who they want to vote for. At a general election too, you tend to get more national considerations, um, and people are thinking about who to vote for as Prime Minister, they're thinking about which party they like nationally. We can often end up very in the weeds of the electoral system in, in Westminster, but it is worth remembering that a significant number about in the population actually do think that the vote is a direct vote for Prime Minister rather than for MPs. So even in seats where Labour, for example, have no chance of winning, you could see Labour bringing in a certain number of votes. And we certainly saw that happening in the last few last few elections. Having said all of that, I agree with James that there clearly is a lot more Labour and Lib Dem overlap. And I think the poison that was in the Lib Dem brand from 2010 to 2019 has clearly been removed. People do not have strong feelings on the Liberal Democrats. People who used to blame them for the coalition, left-leaning voters who blame them for the coalition and tuition fees, no longer hold those views of them. And that makes it much easier to vote for them. So yeah, I don't think we could just assume this is all going to snap back come a general election. The level of tactical voting might slightly dissipate, but I think we're still going to see it playing a very, very significant role. And James, one of the lines that Boris Johnson and other ministers such as Dominic Raab have been using in, in recent days and weeks is that of the sort of overlap between Labour and the Lib Dems to the extent that they've almost got a pact going on. How effective do you think that is? 
I don't think that works particularly. I mean, that would work if people were scared of one or the other. And if you could use one or the other to contaminate the other one. So, you know, don't vote Labour because they're in bed with the Liberal Democrats and the Liberal Democrats believe, you know, X, Y or Z crazy things. Or you might like the Liberal Democrats, but if you vote for them, you're effectively voting for Jeremy Corbyn. That was very effective, as James said, for the Tories in, in 2019. So I think those accusations don't work unless you can use one to contaminate the other. And at the moment, as James said, yeah, there is a strange thing where Ed Davies served in a cabinet led by David Cameron, yet voters on the left seem perfectly prepared to put that aside and, and, and vote for him. I think in some ways it's because they would think that kind of extraordinary times leads to extraordinary measures. But I don't mean that those accusations of, of a pact work. I also think one of the other things which is true, which is... I don't think you need a kind of formal agreement between Ed Davey and Keir Starmer and Caroline Lucas for this kind of thing to work. I think there are only a handful of seats, you know, I'm thinking like cities of London and Westminster or Kensington and Chelsea, where it's not clear who is best placed to be the anti-Tory party, whether it's Labour or the Liberal Democrats. In most places, you can kind of work that out. So while as a Davey, you're going to get to a situation where Labour will stand down in the Liberal Democrats' favour in, in particular seats in the Southwest. I think what you will just see is that Labour will not expend campaign resources on that seat. And that, that is, for the odd reasons James said, that's obviously not going to be enough to, to, to completely remove the Labour vote, but it will, at the margins, give the Lib Dems a boost. James Johnson, do you have any sense of who might be able to address some of the the problems left by Boris Johnson if he departs as leader before the next election. I mean, presumably just getting rid of him would address the Boris Johnson problem, but, but there's the contamination risk that you talked about. So are there any candidates who voters seem particularly attracted towards as Rishi Sunak has plummeted, presumably, in, in terms of his popularity over recent months? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that the removal of Boris Johnson bit is important because it's such a negative drag on, on the party's ratings at the moment that even otherwise popular policies like things on the cost of living or issues like the approaches to tackle Im illegal immigration fall flat because voters don't trust them as they see Boris Johnson as the person behind them. So that in itself will, will make things better. That's why I say you know, that I think that almost any other leader is better for the Conservatives at this stage because that negativity is so significant. A new leader would at least have the chance of a blank slate. In terms of candidates, in terms of where the public are, you're right, Rishi Sunak's approval ratings have gone down, but they are showing some signs of recovering. They're certainly nowhere near as low as Boris Johnson's were. And when you ask voters, even when you filter by awareness of politicians who they want to be the next Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak still tops the table. Not by as much as he did back in January, certainly not by as much as he did last year, but certainly he still, still seems to be in the fight in this race, despite being a little bit beaten up by the events of earlier earlier this year in the spring. To be honest with you, others are almost too low awareness to be able to say much about at the moment. When you talk about them in focus groups, people quite like Nadim Zawahi. There's still people who quite like Jeremy Hunt. And Sajid Javid goes down quite well in focus groups as well. But there's a lot of people like Tom Tugendhat, like Penny Mordaunt, who clearly, on the face of it, could have a pretty good attempt at persuading the public, but the voters don't know much about them at this stage. I should also mention Liz Truss. She's not wildly popular, but she does have support of some members of the public, and particularly amongst that more Lee voting group, she's also quite popular. James Forsyth, what do you make of that? 
if the Tories decide to, to move on Boris Johnson, which I think has probably become slightly more lightly after these results than it was beforehand, then I mean, obviously, the kind of big question is going to become, you know, who is most likely to be able to win a general election? I think there are different considerations depending on how bad the political situation looks for the Tories at the time. You know, are they still thinking that they can do what various, you know, Australian political parties have done, which is you, you change the leader just before the election and then suddenly you, you end up winning a majority again? Or are they looking for a kind of damage limitation candidate. There are some people you talk to, Tory MPs in southern seats, who suggest that, you know, next time round it's so difficult for the Tories, they've been in power for so long, but the kind of case for Jeremy Hunt is you could basically guarantee that the result would not be catastrophic, even if he wasn't going to win you a majority. So, I mean, a lot of the debate will depend on, on the timing of this question. You know, when does it come out and where are things politically at that moment? Thank you, James, for Scythe, and thank you, James Johnson, for joining us.